0: Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Hello. Um, I'm having deja vu all over again. Uh, I want to thank Kieran uh, for the uh, beautiful introduction. Um, you know, when you run around like this and give inter- you know give readings, uh, um, sometimes you're introduced and sometimes you're introduced. (laughs) So that was one of those, meant a lot to me. Um, So I'm gonna read about um, 35 minutes, and I have a timer, so you didn't worry. And then, uh, oh, I know what the most important thing a reading is, (laughs) how long it lasts. So if you have questions at the end, I'm happy to try to answer them. And um, why don't we begin? Um I think I may as well start with uh, I think I'll start about a poem about my twin brother, uh, since Karen mentioned it, and one of the things we were talking about in the uh, in the class today was uh, somebody asked me that I, since I've written about drugs, uh, could I talk about that? And so I said, sure, so we talked about that, so I'll read this poem for the, the students and um, You know, in the poem, it talks about shooting dope. That's one of the things it talks about. It's called The Twins. You know those twins hanging on the corner? They look like me and my twin brother when we were younger, in our 20s. The paler one like me, sickly, more uptight but weirdly aristocratic. More distant than than the one like you, Tim, who, if you were him, would put Hmm. his arm around me with that casualness and gentleness I've always craved between us, which we nearly lost in our 20s, but got back in our 50s. Now that death's in my face, when I look at it, at just the right angle. Then your smile's so open, Tim, that we go back even further. To when we were boys listening on the stairs to our older brother telling us about girls, what you could do with them, what they'd do with you. Not much like our board games and all we'd think about was rolling the dice and moving the metal dog or battleship round and round the squares, counting out loud, intent on winning. But these past few days, your eyes keep confronting me in the mirror, your glance full of a goofball happiness, and the wreath of poppies around your head grazes my forehead too. And like the dope I used to shoot, the clear dose and the syringe lets me down into my body like I'm deep inside your body. The two of us together fed by the same blood, waking, sleeping, nestled next to each other, thumbs in our mouths, But it only lasts a little while, this feeling of me inside you, inside that liquid warmth up the back of my neck and down toward my cock, the high moving at its own sweet will. Tim, I'll only belong to you forever when the other brother the pale and stern and faceless one who holds the needle still when I slide it into the vein and smiles back my smile. I'll only belong to him too when he in some parody of an old rocker and a crowd of old rockers holding up lit cigarette lighters Snaps shut that flickering. Oh, sure, to sleep is good. To die is even better. But the best is never to have been born. Well, I guess I made it out of the womb, eh? (coughs) I think I'll read um, another poem that um, Kiaren mentioned. It's the poem uh, about Zinedine Zidane. Uh, I don't know if we have any uh, soccer fans here. I know we have one. Yeah, right there. Okay. Everybody uh, remember the World Cup? Yeah. Anyway, there was a very famous headbutting episode uh, in which Zidane. Uh, apparently, you know, his, uh, he's an ethnic Algerian playing for the French team, and apparently, one of the Italian players insulted um, his, you know, ethnic origin as well as his sister. So he headbutted him. And um, this poem takes place um, in Lebanon, where I was doing some journalism, and uh, the World Cup was on. Uh, And it was quite an astounding experience to be in uh, Beirut at that time. And, you know, they had huge satellite hookups in every street all over the city. And uh, just off the coast of um, Beirut, there's uh, the pigeon rocks. And they're filthy, um, but people go swimming there anyway. And so I, in a moment of insanity, decided I would go swimming there and uh, nearly drowned. Uh, But, you know, I didn't. So one of the things that I think the poem is about, too, is, uh, you know, the idea of sport as a kind of this beautiful dream of world humanism in which everybody comes together. I I guess that's one of the things the poem talks about and would like to believe, but doesn't, I guess, in the end. Homage to Zidane. In all the cafes on the seafront... Whatever could be seen kept exploding in riots of blue, red, green. Horns everywhere hooting for the ball, soaring toward the net. Slicks of trash and plastic glinting from the waves. The world was in a fever to see the perfect goal. The giant screens on every corner, loud with the locust thrum, Of satellite hookups. Between two limestone cliffs I plunged into the filth, sucked the mouthful of oil, and set out swimming hard to where I heard rising voices shouting in Arabic, score, score. A big wave swept me under, another and another until I shot out of the water that gleamed like a forehead budding mine, expert but without malice, threatening to drag me down until I slid out on the rocks. I shivered and wanted to live in the clear light of the announcer's voices, echoing in different languages, Weaving a net so fine the sun could pass through it. Yeah, you could see an instant replay the ball caught and caught and caught, and not one stitch of that fabric going taut. Here's another poem about sport. It's about football. I played high school football. I'm still recovering. You can see that. I I both loved high school football, and I hated high school football. Um, I loved running into people, and I hated running into people. And uh, I remember once we did a drill in which my twin brother and I, who were both linemen, were asked to get in front of the rest of the team. And uh, he was called Timmy, and I was Tommy. And then the coach said, all right, Timmy and Tommy, go at it. So Timmy and Tommy started smashing into each other. You know, this was supposed to be a lesson in aggression and all the rest of it. Um, And I I confess, I did enjoy smashing into my twin brother. I think he enjoyed smashing into me for a while. But this went on for a long time. Three minutes smashing into somebody is a long time. Um, And they were both exhausted by it. It was a strange experience. (laughs) And the only other thing you need to know about the poem is that um, there was an old uh, talk show radio host, people may know him in uh, Southern Cal, uh, named Joe Pine. You remember, remember, uh, nobody remembers Joe Pine. Anyway, Joe Pine was one of the original talk show hosts and his specialty was to uh, insult people. And uh, he once had uh, Frank Zappa on and they had this strange exchange Uh, And the last thing you need to know is that Joe Pine, um, he had a wooden leg. (laughs) (laughs) Self-Portrait with Shoulder Pads. Brother fighting brother, and the loser driven out. My eyes were on Tim's eyes, off someplace, gone from his body. Well, under his jersey, the shoulder pads gleam brighter, Masculine yoke we both labor under, determined not to get knocked flat. Smashing and smashing into each other, helmets blankly ringing to the whole team screaming in time to the drill. Timmy hit Tommy. Tommy hit Timmy. Until, exhausted, we fall to our knees and still coach refuses to blow the whistle so that we, on our knees, keep ramming into each other. Implacable, servile, our hearts too violent not to play inside the rules. How we envied the hippies on the Joe Pine Show, Pine sneering to Frank Zappa. So, I guess your long hair makes you a woman. Zappa shooting back. I guess your wooden leg makes you a table. (laughs) White as calcium, white as moons brought down into swamp water, white as a cataract on a blind eye. The pads fuse onto shoulder bones to make us walk that athletic walk of power and glory and terror of shame. So Tommy hitting Timmy and Timmy hitting Tommy takes over mind and body in the zone until coach blows the whistle and we get up off our knees and turn to avoid each other's faces. Years later, brought down by gunflash insights of assassination, And business frowns of gangbangers dividing up junk while police held the line in riot masks and shields, I prayed for the cup to pass. But either way, I was an ass and had to carry my ass's load as far as an ass could. I think I'll read read that poem about um, my boss, Bob Harrington, the swimming pool guy. Um, One of the interesting things about, uh, I I used to work swimming pool construction, and um, I was reading in a history of Los Angeles uh, that during the war, uh, there were three great European geniuses who left Europe to come to America to get away from the war, and uh, it was Stravinsky, uh, it was Thomas Mann, and it was uh, Schoenberg, the composer. And I read that all three of them were interested in getting swimming pools. And I thought, well, that's interesting, because my father is over there fighting the war and they're over here thinking about swimming pools. (laughs) I thought, well, that's okay. It's called The Craze. There was a certain point in which everybody wanted to swimming pool. What could I say, a laborer, to the overseas geniuses, that my father fought their war against the Japanese? that the leisure class I served I aspired to? so I could join the high G of the cello floating off, slowly vanishing in a pianissimo fermata. Then nothing more, silence and night. But this was California and soon the heat pump and water filler would strain the water to such a blueness and temperature that acid-washed L.A. would go swimming night and day. The blue havens built by alambristas, union bricklayers, unskilled juvies, teaching me the Faustian accounting of my employer. Bob, just call me a genius Harrington. Screw him out of this, screw him out of that, but sweep up your mess and you'll get away with murder sucking up the slurry of cement and sand. The hose pulsed in the pit of the parvenu, the ingenue. The Hollywood producers and Van Nuys GM bosses whose assembly line crews riveted my beat-up Firebird's body. Wolfman Jack's XERB taking another little piece of my heart now, baby, as I sprayed gunite on rebar ribs, and the air compressor pounded like the other firebird. Stravinsky, taking his temperature in West Hollywood, Schoenberg, watering his lawn in Brentwood, Mon, perched above the waves in Pacific Palisades, had also perused catalogs weighing concrete versus vinyl as blast caps detonated in holes the Demi's drilled and ash sifted down over my face and shoulders to post-war twelve tone assaulting my ears. But while I and my transistor radio worked ten-hour days my father dreamt our own little South Seas grotto. Every weekend We rose to the promise of chlorination as he and us boys dug trenches for our water lines, hacked away the hillside to make our ice plant grow, and rented the monster backhoe digging out the pool pit to rim it with lava stone against the mud. My father waved the baton of his shovel to light the fuse to the cord of dynamited stone the cloud of our need went up all over California and rang in overtones all through me. And I think I'll read uh, an excerpt from that long poem that uh, Kieran mentioned. Uh, the poem's called "Homage to Basho and the uh, Poem came out of a trip that I took uh, under the aegis of uh, University of Iowa uh, International Writing Program. Uh, and I went with the Christopher Merrill, who heads it, and we basically uh, went to Iraq uh, just before the country fell apart, before ISIS really became a firmly established presence in the country. And um, we basically traveled all over the country. Uh, you know, we are in Kurdistan, we were down in Basra, we were in uh, Beirut, and we were there to meet uh, with uh, college students and uh, professors and Iraqi writers and uh, you know it was very dangerous to move around, uh, so wherever we went, um, you know we were always in body armor and all that kind of thing. Uh, and one of the exercises that we did, which uh, Kian mentioned, was um, In one particular workshop, we asked the students to simply do this very simple exercise in which they thought back to their childhoods. And we wanted them to write, I remember, I remember, I remember for each one of their memories. And then at a certain point, we asked them to change that. And we said, why don't you change I remember to I don't want to remember. And everything changed because it was a whole generation that has grown up knowing nothing but war. Uh, either between Iran and Iraq, uh, with the United States, and then in a certain sense with each other. Um, you know, I don't look very military, and I'm not. Uh, and I think this first section will uh, prove that. It's interesting to see Brian Williams back on television. You know. Anyway, I'm not Brian Williams. <coughs> This poem moves back and forth between poetry and prose, uh, which is what uh, I'm a, that's what the 17th century Japanese poet Basho did. He wrote travelogues basically punctuated by poems. This is what this is. I proved myself to be inept at putting on my bulletproof vest, attaching this to that in all the wrong places before figuring out how to Velcro the waist panels tightly around my stomach so that they were under the vest, not over it, and adjusting and readjusting the shoulder straps to make sure they were tight. I didn't look very military. In fact, I looked like I was wearing a bib, a sort of Rambo Jr. Now that I was strapped into my vest, it felt fairly lightweight, around eight pounds, thick enough according to the specs to give reasonable protection against handguns. But when you consider that a bullet fired from a military-style weapon is the equivalent of a five-pound sledgehammer smashing into you at 45 miles per hour, serious bruising and broken ribs are pretty much guaranteed. I put on my helmet and snapped the chin snap fast, but I had to keep pushing it back from sliding down over my eyes. Rather than protected, I looked and felt Like an overgrown infant. In front of our armored vehicle, a Chevy Suburban SUV reinforced with steel plating, a beefy but terminally polite security contractor gave us a briefing. Once you're inside the vehicle, please stay away from the doors. We'll let you in and out. If we take fire or if I give you the signal to get down, I'd appreciate it if you could get on the bottom of the vehicle. I'll climb in back with you and cover you. Once we get to our destination, you can leave your armor and helmets in the vehicle. Then we'll open the doors and we'll proceed single file to our destination. Everything clear? Lamentation on Ur from a Sumerian spell, 2000 BC like molten bronze and iron, shed blood pools. Our country's dead melt into the earth as grease melts in the sun. Men whose helmets now lie scattered, men annihilated by the double-bladed axe. Heavy beyond help, They lie still as a gazelle exhausted in a trap, muzzle in the dust. In home after home, empty doorways framed the absence of mothers and fathers who vanished in the flames remorselessly spreading, claiming even frightened children who lay quiet in their mother's arms, now born into oblivion, like swimmers swept out to sea by the surging current. May the great barred gate of blackest night again swing shut on silent hinges. Destroyed in its turn, may this disaster, too, be torn out of mine. In one of our workshops, a young woman wearing a black and white headscarf with a round face and large black eyes and with just a hint of mascara on the lashes stood up to read her poem. Her name was Maryam and she stood very straight in front of her classmates and read to us with a quiet, unselfconscious dignity. Her pronunciation was excellent so I have a good memory of what she wrote. She said that she was woken near dawn by her older brother in her bedroom who had bent down to gently kiss her on the cheek and to ask her if she wanted anything special in the market. And when she looked up at him to tell him no, he said to her very gently that this would be the last time she'd be seeing him. But she was so sleepy, she didn't quite take in what he meant. And a moment later, he was gone. Later that morning, she wrote, she was in the kitchen having breakfast with her mother. And then their neighbor came in and gave them the news. She wrote that as she heard the news, she felt herself get smaller and disappear. She had no hands, no face, no body to feel with. There was no kitchen, no mother, no her. The neighbor she wrote told them about the car accident. She wrote how she remembers her brother's words coming back to her, how gentle he was when he kissed her on the cheek, how he would always bring her special things from the market. And then she sat down, seeming completely self possessed except for the sadness that had come into her voice and hung now in the room. No one said anything for a while as what she hadn't said, didn't need to say since everyone in her generation already understood resonated for a few moments. Chris and I looked at each other, but were slower in grasping what it was she'd left out. And then it dawned on us too. Her brother had been a suicide bomber and blown himself up in the car. The chopper's sides were open to the night air and I instinctively shoved myself back on the bench as far as I could get. Not very far, it turned out, certainly not far enough to quell my unease about hurtling through the air with no door in front of me. The contractor gave me thumbs up and I at least knew enough to give thumbs up back and then the chopper blades accelerated faster and louder. He slid the lenses of his night vision goggles past the lip of his helmet and down over his eyes to keep watch for snipers on the ground, and then we slowly ascended, the nose of the chopper dipping slightly as the tail lifted, and we soared straight up until the pilot adjusted the pitch of the rotors, and we shot ahead, eventually climbing to about a hundred feet over the city." Everything was dark down below for the first quarter mile, and then we were crossing over Baghdad, the lights of the cars on the road flickering softly, house lights shining in the windows. The pilot occasionally flicked a switch on the instrument panel, and then, as we rose higher and the night air got very cold, the contractor slid the Lexing glass doors closed on the passenger part of the tiny cabin. The chopper shimmied back and forth in the light wind, soft buffets, almost the way a child might pet a cat on the head. Just above the pilot's helmet, silhouetted against the curved glass of the windshield, shimmered another little galaxy. Switches glowing in the darkness, an overhead instrument panel lit up the pilot's hand as he leisurely lifted his arm to switch something off or on. For a moment, I had the reverie of myself as a child, looking up at day-glow stars stuck to the ceiling over my bed, a memory I knew to be false since I'm way too old for such things to have existed when I was a kid, nor were my parents the type to indulge me with day-glow stars. I knew, even as I took pleasure in it that my fantasy was out of sync with the reality on the ground, not to mention the contractor hunching forward his gun in his lap intently scanning the darkness below. At least the contractor had his orders and his night vision goggles. What I had to go on was a drone of helicopter noise, its surgical detachment, from the neighborhood alleys and streets and the way my own hyper-vigilant senses magnified and crystallized the light and dark flow of the city beneath me. One of Saddam's former palaces, encircled by a moat that testified to the dead dictator's love of water, glowed dimly below us, looking like an Arabian Nights fantasy in bad taste and reputed to have a torture chamber in the basement. Aloft in the chopper and looking down, I found and continue to find it hard to know what tone to take when the truth is both atrocious and banal. And if you are on the ground looking up. In an oral history of the Iraq war, I'd come across this account of a pregnant woman, Rana Abdul Mahdi, who lives in Sadr City. Quote, I saw a helicopter floating very high in the air away from me, and I watched as it fired a rocket toward me and my little sister, Zara. She was eight. I felt heat all over my body, and then I was on the ground as the street filled with smoke. There were bodies all around me, and I saw my sister with all her insides spilling out her front. She was reaching for me, motioning with her hand for me to come and help. I saw my left foot was gone. It was sitting there in the street a little ways from me. Before Rain Whatever you do, there are rockets falling. And after the rockets, smoke climbing up through walls that are exploding. Trees grow up, whether once were people. Weeds take over beds of lettuces and coddled flowers. Uprearing mole hills unpopulate the fields. The bricked-in hours of the human have all been knocked down. No one lingers at lipstick counters. No one stares into a screen to escape the digital mayhem of heroes hurtling over the heads of monsters. The old bones on the mountain that stand upright and shake when winds blow up from the shore. Old bones that shake when the winds roar now dangle in the void of an unknown dimension. Forget all this, says Earth to the stars. And then I'll finish with two poems. And uh, I'm gonna read this one for um, Kiaram. Uh Both of us were friends of Phil Levine and, uh, uh, you know, shortly before Phil died, uh, he, is, he gave me a call and asked me to come out and see him, and so I did. And uh, you know how it is when uh, you're seeing a friend for the last time. There's all this kind of intensity of emotion in the room. But one thing about Phil, he was immensely funny, uh, totally ironic at all times. And, uh, you know... First time you, you say I love you, and he says I love you, and, and you know you say I love you, and he says I love you. But the third time he says, you know what? Let's not use that word. <laughs> you know the L word's been used too much. And so I thought, yeah, that makes sense. And the only other thing about the poem that you need, know, I remember when I met Phil about I don't know when I was a pup, nearly 30 years ago. Um, we were we, we had met for the very first time, we were talking about a poem by Philip Larkin, uh, one of Phil's favorite poets. And uh, we were talking about this particular poem called uh, At, At Grass, which is about retired racehorses. And the line that he particularly loved when we were discussing was, goes, till wind distresses tail and mane. And Phil, looked at me and he says, what do you think of that line? I said, oh, great line, man. And And then he said, well, don't don't you like the pun on that word, distress? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, great, great, yeah. He says, Phil Vincil said, you know, like distress isn't to agitate. And he said, and of course you know that um, racehorses have their tails and manes braided before they run. So therefore, if the manes and the tails are distressed and distressed, he said, "You knew that, right?" He said, "I, oh, yeah, Phil, <laughs> I knew that." So, the last thing you need to know is Phil had a heart arrhythmia his whole life long, which never really bothered him. For Phil, he sits reading under his desk lamp. He loves how wind distresses tail and mane. He likes the rhymes internal and irregular. How people from the old days walk in and out of the palm. How the father who dies in one stanza can rise in another. How, despite the drought, the rain keeps falling in 14 lines. His rumpled bed is never not specific as the dent his head leaves in the pillow. He rubs his hand across his jaw, unshaven. His touch on the back of your wrist is delicate and urgent. When you help him up from bed, he isn't shy about holding on. When he lies back down, he grips his water bottle and won't let go. Smiling says, let's not use that word. It's been used 10,876 times. He shrugs off the weepers, the brotherly lovers, the sour preachers turning purple and blue in their dandruff-sprinkled robes. Out in his backyard in Fresno, the oranges are ripening. At his window in Brooklyn, the plain trees, stripped bare of leaves, click softly in the breeze. Him in his undershirt, in his tweed jacket, in sweatpants, watching Norman Shamansky clean and jerk. Now he's throwing rocks on the bridle path, he's turning into a fox, the brush of his tail mocks the pack, he leaps clear of his own tracks, doubles back, loses the Lord's and ladies writing. Now he's preaching to rats, showing them pages in holy books, money books, books of the entitled that are good to eat and chew right down. But all alone in his study with ice and sun, he scrawls with his fountain pen, crosses it all out, starts again. And this time, rising up are the sheared away walls of an abandoned high school, a stack of rusted axles, a diner where nobody talks openly of love, but where ketchup and mockery are served up with the coffee, and his heart, arrhythmic, pulses out of sync, all on its own. And I'll finish with another elegy for a poet, that's uh, Seamus Heaney who was also a friend of ours. And uh, this poem came about uh, the day Seamus died. I was walking around Brooklyn and I walked by a tea shop. And there in the tea shop window was a old brown fedora, which, see, we're done, which looked exactly, like Seamus's old brown fedora. And then there was a little palm set up on a tea tin, and it was one of Seamus's. And I went in and I said to the guy, this looks like Seamus's hat. He said, well, that's because it is Seamus's hat. And he had given Seamus a ride to a reading 20 years ago, and Seamus had left the hat in the back seat, and he'd never had figured out how to return it. So there it was called Valediction, In Memoriam, Seamus Heaney. The backyard lives of cat and bird and the way leaves give themselves away this instant to the all but no breeze, creeping across the silver-painted roof where clouds reflected past dark, then bright of above a book left out by the vacant deck chair fluttering its pages, signaling to the reader somewhere out of sight to come back, come back, and start the book over. This all arrives without a valediction, forbidding anything, just the sense of seeing something or someone for the last time. The poet's faded fedora in a tea store window, haunting this October's primary blues, bringing back mid May and the missing mate of the nightingale singing day long and night late. Thank you. And if uh, anyone has any questions, uh, Kieran said you-